So you know it's going to be a good day when the preacher brings props, right? Um, we're in part four of this six-part series um, called Life Apps. I'm talking about the importance of doing um, as opposed to simply just hearing. Um, and so I want to start with a question to kind of get us all going the same direction, especially for those of you who have not been uh, with us throughout the, the first part of this um, series. Um, and I want to ask a, a question, show of hands, you're in church, so you can't lie, okay? How many of you have either bought exercise equipment, joined a gym, or bought some kind of a book on health or dieting? Come on, hands up. Yeah, okay. Most of us, right? Um, isn't it interesting? You kind of take yourself back to that moment when you did that, when you joined the gym and you were touring it, you know, they were showing you around, or, um, you know, Academy dropped off the elliptical or the treadmill or whatever it was, or you got the book and you opened it up and you started reading and you were like highlighting every page, you were throwing stuff away from your pantry and the kids were like, what are we going to eat, mom and dad, because there's no food left, right? All that stuff. Isn't it kind of interesting? You felt healthier in those moments. Like you felt healthier just doing that. Maybe you even got some workout clothes and you put them on. You looked in front of the mirror it's like, I even look thinner right now, right? You, you felt healthier doing all those things. But here's my question. Were you? No. You were not healthier. And you want to know why you weren't healthier? Because application makes all the difference. Going to the gym on a regular basis you know, eating healthy on a regular basis, putting all that stuff that you're reading into practice on a regular basis is what makes all the difference. Where this shows up kind of in my life, at least um, in practical ways, just like it does with health and fitness and all that stuff. Um, anytime that I hear something weird coming in from my car or smell something funny, I'll, you know, open up the hood and I'll just stand there, you know, with my hands on my hips looking at it. And yeah, that doohickey thing there, that's good. Yeah. And there's this little bit of euphoria in me, like, I'm fixing it. <laughs> like, it's, it's getting better. Or I'll get underneath, you know, I don't do that very often anymore because I'm 44. But I'll get underneath or I'll look at it. Or I'll, you know, that thing looks like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'll close the hood, go take a nap, and I'll call the mechanic afterwards. But there's something in me that just standing out in my driveway with the hood open makes me feel like I'm making progress. But I'm not making any progress. There is, there is no progress without application because application makes all the difference. And that same dynamic when it comes to joining a gym or reading a book or whatever it is and, or popping the hood, that same dynamic like happens when it comes to God and church and the Bible. We, we have these moments, we have these seasons, these places where, you know, we, 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 we have a conversation about faith or we go to church or we go to a small group and we feel convicted or we feel inspired or we feel better in some way, shape or form. Maybe you get a, a question, a faith question answered and there's something in you like, I think I'm making progress. I'm making progress. You're not. You're not. Feeling convicted, feeling inspired, feeling better, getting that answer, whatever it is, that, that, that doesn't mean you're making progress, just as it means you're not making progress when you join the gym, and you're not making progress just by reading the book, 
And I'm not making progress simply by popping the hood, but for some reason in church world, we pat ourselves on the back and we give ourselves credit for all kinds of things like that. Maybe it's a negative side. Like you go to church, you're bored out of your gourd. It's so uninteresting and, and just terrible. And you think to yourself, you've thought this before, like God has got to be giving me credit for this right now. So it could be positive or it could be negative. It could be either side of that. But for some reason, we think that is actually making any kind of difference. But as we've seen throughout this series, it's application that makes all the difference. And we're talking about five specific applications, uh, five things that Christians do to apply their faith on a day-to-day basis. There are more than five, there are way more than five, but we're just talking about five throughout this series. And today's app is Trust. We're going to talk about trust and not trust between you and God, but trust between you and me. Trust between you and your kids, trust between you and your spouse, trust between you and your boss, trust between you and your employees, trust between you and your homeowners association, maybe even a little trust between you and your government. What? Can we talk about that in church, you know? Um, Because you know this, like you know, you don't need a preacher to tell you this. You know that like trust is the bedrock of relationships. Your relationships are only good as the trust that exists uh, between them. And, and one of the reasons that I wanted to do this, I wanted, I wanted part of this series to be relational. I wanted at least one part to be specifically relational. But there's also, and I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm way out in left field on this. It just seems like there's less trust between people. It seems like it's harder I don't know why. I, I, I think I can point to a few things, but I don't. I just don't think that trust as, is given and received as much anymore. And I think, as followers of Jesus, we're we're called to this. I think we're called to this, and we can be an example of this. And so that's one of the reasons I want to talk about this. Now, before we get to the passage, I just want to call this out. Um, there are things that affect or impact our ability to trust. And I'm going to talk about three things real quick. Number one, um, what you see impacts how or your ability to trust. So if somebody in your life or, you know, something happens where they promise you something, it doesn't come through, that impacts your ability to trust. It's what you see people doing. Who you are is the second one because you grew up in a certain kind of home. You, you have an ex, you have an in-law thing, um, you, you were fired without reason, maybe you left your former church for, for something, maybe all of those things happened to you, and that forms who you are. And over time, because of who you are, because of what happens to you, um, especially if it's negative, it kind of impacts your heart, and you put this this, this cover on your heart is like, I don't, I don't, I don't want to trust. I want to protect myself. It's just more difficult for you because of all those things formed you and who you are, okay? So what you see and who you are affect our ability to trust. But there's this third thing, and I think this is, I, I'm hoping to make the case for this, but I think Christians are called to stretch and to bend and to learn how to trust. So, so our faith, our belief in God, the doing, the obeying of God's word in our daily lives impacts our ability to trust. And for some of us, 
Not all of us. Again, depending on what you see and who you are. For some of us, we need a power outside of us to help us trust. And I believe that's part of the role of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's life, is to empower them to do the things that Jesus and the scriptures ask us to do. I don't think God would ask us to do something if he didn't think we could do it. And I don't think God asks us to do something that he doesn't empower us to do. And so as we, as we go through this, you're going to find yourself in one of those camps. You're going to, maybe you're on the scale somewhere, okay? But just, just know, there are things that impact our ability to trust. This isn't just, okay, i got to walk out this door and do that. There are things that impact us, both positively and negatively, Okay? So, if you have a Bible or a mobile device, find the, one of the most famous chapters in all the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, also known as the, the love chapter. Yeah. Apostle Paul, um, he responds to the song by Foreigner in, in 1 Corinthians 13. I want to know what love is. You know that song? He, he answers that question in 1 Corinthians 13. And, and instead of giving us a dictionary definition, he gives us a description, and then at the very end, he kind of bumps into this issue of trust, and it's almost like you can you, you can see Paul thinking to himself, "How do I say this?" Because they're going to think this sounds extreme. They're going to ask, "What about this, Paul? And what about that? And what about this situation? Do you do you need to hear my situation first? You need to hear my story." How do, and Paul says, "How do I say this in a clear, compelling way?" Okay, so I want to read the verses leading up to that, and then we're going to hang out mainly in that part of First Corinthians 13. So here we go. 1 Corinthians 13, this is the yeah, yeah, yeah. We've heard it all the weddings. Uh, Verse four, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Yeah, Paul, we get it. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Ooh. Some of you married couples, you have a mental filing cabinet. Right? It's like back in, do you remember November 11th, 1982? <laughs> you got a filing cabinet, right? And Paul says, the, the kind of love that Paul is describing says that kind of love doesn't have a mental filing cabinet. It doesn't even have a three by five card. It keeps no record of wrongs. We should maybe come back and explore that one further at some point. I'm not going to tell you when because you won't show up to church. Then he starts focusing on his big idea. Verse six, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. That means, that means love doesn't try to catch somebody doing something wrong. Love doesn't go, I knew you were going to say that. I was waiting for you to say that. Love doesn't say, I knew you were going to be late. I knew you, were going to, you weren't going to give me credit for that. I was just waiting for you to blow it, and you did. Paul says love doesn't operate like that. It actually looks for an opportunity to catch people doing right. Catch the truth. And then this is where, I don't know this, but it's kind of like Paul stops and goes, okay, that says it, but it doesn't quite say it. So he gives us four phrases. I think they're all pointing to this idea of trust. He even uses the word. Here's where he says, he says, it, talking about love, always protects. Always. It always trusts. There's our word, but Paul always? It always hopes. Wait a minute. That, is that, that's impossible, Paul. Always hopes? Always perseveres. Okay, isn't that, isn't that kind of extreme, Paul? And Paul's going, yes, if you think it's extreme, you understand what I'm saying about love. 
It bends. It stretches. It leans into the other person. It's always trying to protect the relationship, even if you have to do the majority or a lot of the work, because I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up. I'm always hoping. I'm always persevering. I'm always trusting. I'm always, I'm always, I'm just going to keep bending in your direction over and over and over again. So let me give you three statements to kind of summarize this, and then we can talk about specifically how it plays out in relationships. As it relates to trust, I think Paul is saying love gives the other person the benefit of the doubt. Love gives the other person the benefit of the doubt. When there's a dilemma, a discrepancy between what's promised and what actually happens, love gives the other person the benefit of the doubt. Second thing, love looks for the most generous explanation for the other person's behavior. Like when there's a gap, and we'll talk about a gap here in a minute. When there's a gap between what was promised and what actually happened. Um, My son said he would do this. He hasn't. My husband promised me this. It hasn't taken place. My boss said this, but uh, whenever there's a gap, we put something in that gap. And, and love says, before I jump to conclusions, what's the most generous explanation for this? It's the most generous explanation. Third statement, love chooses trust over suspicion. Love chooses trust over suspicion. We're going to come back to that one here in a second. So we talked about this before, but I, I think it, it works in talking about this as well. So in every relationship, home, work, HOA, wherever you have church, wherever you have relationships, we have expectations. Every single one of us, we have expectations. This is what I think is going to happen. This is what I would like to happen. We all have expectations. This is not right or wrong. It just is. This is the human element in relationships. We all have expectations. And on the other side, we all have experiences. They both start with E. So you can remember it. I thought you were going to do X, Y, Z, but you've only done Y. You said, but you haven't done that. There's the expectation and then what you actually experience this is why you said, you said you would do this part of the group project, and this is why I don't like group projects, <laughs> right? This is what you expected and what you experienced. Again, it's not right or wrong. It just is. It's what we deal with in relationships. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes there's a gap between that and that. There's a gap between the expectation and the experience. And if you do nothing else with what we're talking about today, do this one thing. One thing. If you pause long enough to practice this simple truth, anytime there's a gap between what you expect and what you experience, we, as in you, I, we, that's the key word, decide what goes in the gap. We decide what goes in the gap. And, and I know you're going, no, 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 no. No, I don't decide what goes in the gap. They decided for me when they said 8 o'clock, but it's 10. They decided what goes in that gap because they're still not here. They have forced me to fill in the gap. But the truth is, they didn't force you to do that. They might have nudged you in that direction, but they didn't force you. They don't control what you put in the gap. When it comes to great relationships, friendships, dating, marriage, work, church, Paul says, 
Love bends. Love does everything it can to always protect, to always hope, to always trust. It always believes the best. And love understands it's my decision what I put in the gap. And there's multiple gaps in multiple arenas, right? It happens at home if you're raising kids. There are multiple gaps, multiple days. Because you ask them to clean their room a thousand times and the room is still not cleaned. Expectation, experience, there's a gap. Or you're married, you ask your spouse, put the dishes in the dishwasher. They're in the sink. Expectation, experience, there's a gap. That's the gap. At work, okay, you said, or we said, we were going to, um, we were going to, to, to do this as a joint project, but you're, you're kind of going in this like this is your project. You're owning it. There's a gap. We said you would pay me this much. They wrote the check for a lot less than that. There's a gap. Let's talk about nationally for a second. Seems like hating the other side has become our new national pastime. Why not talk about it in church, right? If you're a Republican, you're being taught to believe that every Democrat is an idiot. And if you're a Democrat, you're being taught to believe that every Republican is an idiot. And that president and that senator and that speaker and that issue and that and that and that and that and that. I expect this, but I'm experiencing this. There's a gap. There's a gap. You decide. I decide what to put in the gap. And here are my options. You can believe the best or assume the worst. But you choose. You choose. Is there, pa- is there a past? Is there patterns? Yeah, absolutely. But you still choose to believe the best or assume the worst. In fact, the research has shown, and you can read this, you can Google it right now if you want especially when it comes to marriage. But the research has shown in healthy relationships, husband, wife, parent, child, boss, employee, 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 Democrat, Republic. In healthy relationships, both parties go to ridiculous lengths to do this. That's what the research shows, which means modern research says what Paul said 2,000 years ago through the inspiration of the Spirit is right. It's, it's almost like God knows what he's doing. It's almost like he gave us like this map for having really good relationships. Research, all, all the research, you could, again, you could do it because at the end of the day, nothing is gained by refusing to trust. Nothing's gained. Think about it. Suspicion is experienced as rejection. We all experience suspicion as rejection. That's how we experience it. It's not me. That doesn't mean that's what the person's doing, but we experience it as rejection. When I feel like you don't trust me, you're suspicious of everything I do, I feel rejected whenever you're suspicious. And what do we do whenever we feel rejected emotionally or relationally? Do we open up or do we close? Not a trick question. We, we close whenever we're experiencing rejection because God designed you as an acceptance magnet. You're drawn to environments and relationships where you feel most accepted. And suspicion communicates rejection. Consequently, when you choose, when I choose, and it's a choice, 
to assume the worst, even if you're right, even if you end up being right, even if you get a long list of why you should do just this, you have taken a step towards closing down the relationship. You're no longer protecting always, enduring always, hoping always, trusting always. You're no longer bending like love bends because you've assumed the worst. Now, I know what some of you are thinking because I can see it on your face right now, even with these lights. You're thinking, Tim, if I could just have the microphone for a minute, I'd like to tell my story. And your message would go up in flames, man, right? Because you've got a story. You've got a situation. You've got a perspective. And I totally get that. I understand. I've heard the stories. I, people call me. People don't call the church going, hey, Tim, just call and check in. Everything's good here. They don't do that, okay? I hear the stories. I hear all the stuff going on. I get it. I get it, Okay. I'm going to address the, the extreme situations in a minute, but before we get there, I just don't want you to miss this, okay? No matter how wide the gap is, no matter how often the gap occurs, you still choose what to put in there. You still choose to do this or this. You still choose to, to believe the best or assume the worst. Nobody can do that for you. And I think it is within our power to choose what goes in the gap because your best shot, my best shot, our best chance at restoring, at healing, at building back, at building better, whatever it is, those relationships is this. It's to believe the best. It's to believe the best. I've never heard anyone say, you know, things were so tense at work. And then my boss came in and said, I don't trust you, and things are just so much better now. I've never heard that. I've never heard the marriage, you know, where we were at each other's throat, and she finally said, I don't trust you, and our marriage is so much more fun and romantic. It's just awesome. Never heard that. Even if they deserve it, when you communicate, I don't trust you, the relationship shrinks. The relationship starts to, to shut down because a lack of trust is experienced and, as rejection, and we flee. We flee re rejection. So Paul says, look, I know, know it sounds extreme. It doesn't sound practical at all. It doesn't sound natural. It actually kind of sounds super natural to always do this. But this is, even in the most difficult relationship, love bends, love bends, Love bends. It always trusts. Now, it's going to sound like I'm talking on both sides of my mouth. Maybe I am. I don't know. But are there relationships when the gap gets so wide and, and wider and wider and wider and the relationship is so strained and you've bent so much you're about to break? Does that happen? Yes. Absolutely. What do you do when that happens? What are you supposed to do? Is Paul saying that we're just supposed to stick our head in the sands and you know, ignore that and, because we're Christians and, and everything's always happy and everything's always good? Is that what he's saying here? I don't think that's what he's saying here. In fact, he says in other places that there are things to do whenever that happens. So when I say this, it's going to sound so obvious, but it's so obvious we don't do it. And here's, here's what, what happens in those moments. When we can't choose to trust, we must choose to confront when you've bent all you can to the point you're about to break, when there's a consistent problem, when there's a consistent sin issue, we 
confront. You know how Jesus said this? Matthew 18 and Matthew 5, but mainly in Matthew 18. The only time I know where Jesus taught step one, step two, step three, step four was when he was teaching us what to do to confront. Have you ever wondered why? Why does Jesus teach in steps there, but he doesn't teach in steps anywhere else? You ever wonder about that? I think it's because he is so pro-relationship. He is so pro-reconciliation. He's the prince of peace. He is so locked into that that he knows for healing to happen, for reconciliation to happen, there is a point where we have to confront. But here's the problem. Too often, we don't confront. We don't talk to the person. We talk about them. Or we have imaginary conversations. In the shower, when you're driving by yourself, and you are undefeated in imaginary conversations, aren't you? You're like, you've never been beat. Neither have I. It's the strangest thing. Like, nobody ever loses in imaginary conversations. We don't talk to, we talk about, or we think about. But Jesus taught. I think common sense says, many of us have learned, the moment you realize you're bending and you're about to break, the next step is to have a conversation. It's to have a conversation. So teenagers, if you've never, been, if you've never heard this before, 20-somethings, 30-somethings, 70-somethings, if you grew up in a passive-aggressive home, if you've never had anybody teach you how to confront, here's how you do it. It's really simple. It's not easy, but it's really simple. Confronting is simply asking for an explanation, assuming there's a good one. You ask for an explanation, assuming there's a good one. I'm not asking you because I don't trust you. I'm asking you because I don't want to make up a story to explain your behavior. I'm not asking because I don't trust you. I'm asking because I don't want to make up a story to explain your behavior. I'm assuming the best, but I want to hear straight from your mouth an explanation for this. I think that's at its simplest form what confrontation is. And because when you approach it like that, you're communicating, hey, I want to do whatever I can to keep the door open to this. I, I, I might not be doing it right. I may be fumbling through this. But as much as I possibly can, I want to keep the door open to the relationship. I want to protect the relationship as much as I possibly can. So when I don't know, instead of talking about you, instead of having imaginary conversations with you, I'm going to confront. I'm going to ask for an explanation, assuming all along there's a good one. Right? And again, I know some of you are going, Tim, I'm not a confronter. I'm from Kansas. We're nice in Kansas. We don't confront. Right? Right? Here's some good news. Most people aren't good at confronting. I'm not. I'm terrible. I'm the opposite of a confronter. I'm an avoider. I avoid, avoid, avoid. But those of us who are not confronters, we're in the majority. There's only about 5 to 8% of the population that kind of do this naturally. And if you don't love confrontation, you're actually going to be good at it. Because think about, have you ever been confronted by somebody who likes it? Was that a good experience for you? Was that fun for you? It's not fun. But when you're not good at it, when you're not good at confronting, you're going to approach it as, I'm going to pray about this. I'm going to think about this for days. I'm going to try my best to honor the other person. I'm going to try my best to find reconciliation in this. So even if you don't think you're good at it, you're actually probably better than you give yourself credit for. If, 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 just reverse it. Just reverse it. Somebody in your life 
at work, at home, wherever, there's a gap because of something you've done. Don't you want them to come and ask you? Don't you want them to come and say, hey, what's going on here? And, and most of the time, isn't it true when we confront and we hear the explanation, we go, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, that's a piece of information I would have liked to know sooner so I could have slept for the last eight years. When we can no longer choose to trust, the next step is we choose to confront. So to sum it up, every relationship, expectations, experiences, when there's a gap, we choose what goes in the gap. And Paul says, followers of Jesus, as much as you possibly can, bend, stretch, believe the best until you can no longer believe the best. And when it becomes impossible, give a generous, to give a generous explanation, ask them quickly, directly, and assume that there's a good explanation for it because that's what love does. That's what love does. Now, let's talk about extreme situations for a minute. I believe most people, not all people, but I believe most people want to be trusted. They want to be trusted. So even if you're at the end of your rope with someone, you don't know what else to do, they won't budge. When you look at them, and instead of saying, I don't trust you, you say, I want to trust you. The average person hears that as, okay, I want to be trustworthy. Not everybody. Not everybody. I think the average person says, I want to be trustworthy. So even if you're married to the worst of the worst, the lion, the cheat, and he's got a motorcycle hidden somewhere, she has credit cards you don't know about, if you're in the worst situation and you look at that person and you say, I want to trust you, that is the most direct route to discovering whether or not they're trustworthy. The, the, the best way to discover if someone is trustworthy is to trust them. And the best way to discover or to turn somebody who is trustworthy into someone who is not is to refuse to trust them. That's the power of this. That's the relational power of trust. So, Here's how we'll wrap this up. I want to talk to, to, to both sides of the coin here, okay? Number one, if you're the kind of person who has a difficult time trusting people and you have good reason for, like the way you're raised, the home, the stuff that's happened in your past, whatever it is, I want to suggest something that you can do to take a step to start working through that. It's simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. And you'll think it's silly when I say it. It is, probably. But I still think you should do it just to see what happens, okay? Here's my suggestion. At some point today or some point this week when you're by yourself, maybe you're having an imaginary conversation with somebody. I want you to say something out loud three times. And it has to be out loud because you've said it, you've thought it, you may have even thought over the last 30 minutes. But I, need, I want you to say this out loud three times. And here's what I want you to say. I have a hard time trusting people. I have a hard time trusting people. Just listen to your words. I, oh, I, I have a hard, with all the gaps, with all that stuff that's happened, with the, the I'm protecting my heart, I have a hard time trusting people. 
And then when another gap shows up, you say, I have a hard time trusting people, but that also means I can do what somebody like me doesn't do natural. I can do what somebody like me is, doesn't do intuitively. I can choose to do what God through Paul says. I can choose to always believe, to always hope, to always trust, to always persevere, even though I have a hard time trusting. That's your homework. For others of you, you're very trusting. You trust your kids with complete strangers. You pick up hitchhikers, whatever it is. But even though you're very trusting, my guess is there's that one person that in your family, um, you work with them. What, they're, just, they're just shifty, right? There's, there's always whispering or whenever you walk in the room, they stop talking. There's just this thing and there's, there's a gap. There's a constant gap. Here's my question for you. <laughs> it's not fun. It's not fun for me to even think about this. As a follower of Jesus, what can you do to break the cycle of mistrust? What can you do? And, and I know the, the, the temptation is, well, I can't do anything if he would just and she would just and he and she and they and if they, if they, if they, then I, then I, then I, then I. I get that. But Paul says, Okay, let me explain this again. Love always believes, always hopes, always trusts, always perseveres. That God's, we sang about it. God's love has been extended to you through the life and death and resurrection of his son. How do you then extend that kind of love to people even if you struggle trusting them? What can you do? Is it, is it doing something mentally with this thing? Like, yeah, that, that is me. I do usually assume the worst. What, what, what do I need to do to get to here? Is it having a conversation with them? Yeah, it's an awkward conversation. They, ugh, I'm struggling, but I want to trust you. I want to trust you. They could be evil as I'll get out. <laughs> and the phrase, I want to trust you, at least keeps the door open. And if there's any hope for change, that's it. That's it. I want to trust you, okay? So forget all this, which you probably will. If the whole message becomes a blur, let me summarize the whole thing with a brilliant insight Jesus delivered to all of us about relationships. When there's a gap, here's what Jesus said. Do to others. Do to others as you would have them do to you. How do you want people to respond to you when you create a gap? Jesus says, do that. You want them to assume the best. You want them to not assume the worst. You want them to believe the best. And Jesus says, just do that same thing for other people. Do to them what you would want them to do to you. And when you take the words of Paul and Jesus, mix them all together, it's really simple. When there's a gap, choose trust. When there's a gap, choose trust. Will you always feel trust? No, no, we won't always feel trust, but we can choose trust. We can bend. We can extend to them not what they deserve, not exactly what you would want them or what, what they've done to you. You extend to them what you want them to extend to you, the gift 
of trust. You'll be better for it. The relationship will be better for it. The doors, even on the most difficult relationships, will at least, they'll at least remain a little bit open because you chose trust. You chose to do trust. Not just hear about it. Not just feel it. You chose to do it. So, struggle to trust. I have a hard time trusting people. If you're really trustworthy, but there's that one person, what can you do to break that cycle of mistrust? So, have fun with your homework this week. We'll see you next week.